Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. Uh, we have someone on this evening. Actually, as a crow flies, we're only about 60 miles apart. He's in Massachusetts. I'm down in uh, the Cape right now, um, and it's Chris Pittman. Um, he is basically a UFO historian. I heard him uh, back on uh, the Bridgewater Triangle movie and then also on the Phenomenon, that uh, James Fox movie. So I'm real excited to have him on. He's looked at this subject um, since about the 1990s and a uh, great, great guy. Uh, anyway, uh, so next week, uh, this Thursday, actually, I'm leaving for my friend and I are leaving for Arizona. We're going to be out at the MUFON boot camp. And uh, next week, we'll be filming a whole bunch of us uh, from right there. It should be a lot of fun. I think Mark D'Antonio might actually be joining us and perhaps uh, Matthew Roberts uh, might be a uh, past guest. Also, who lives nearby might be joining us. And uh, I know Alejandro shows up there now and then. I'm not sure if he's going to be there. That would be great if I could actually get him on. Just a couple of other things. Uh, this week's blog uh, by Charles Lear. It's actually a repost and it's uh we put it up for Halloween because it's the Kelly Kentucky UFO goblins. So uh, that's about the, um, the Hopkinsville uh, encounter, very strange one with uh, shooting at these things, whatever they are. And, and uh, scared, they were scared all night. I had um, a, the daughter of someone uh, that was there on this show at one point, it's just a fascinating case. If you haven't looked into that, if you're new looking at this topic, you want to Google that one, the, the uh, Hopkinsville encounter UFO encounter. And I think that's it. I do want to thank everyone that supports the show. Anyone can do that over at podcastufo.com. And uh, let's see just one other thing on September. I'm sorry, November going backwards here, November, 16th actually november 17th was 10 years ago was my very first show show number one episode number one with steve bassett he was the only one of all the people i reached out to that actually agreed to be on my first show so i'm going to repost that on the date on november 17th but our regular scheduled show is november 16 and i'm going to have all kinds of guests on that uh uh, Luis uh, Yemez is uh, scheduled to be the guest, but we're going to have all kinds of people stop in and say hi. That's on November 6th, the 10th anniversary show. And I hope some longtime listeners uh, call in as well on that. So for right now, I'm going to bring in the guest tonight, Chris Pittman. Welcome to the show, Chris. Whoops, I'm not hearing you, Chris. You might be muted. Uh-oh. Chris is on a phone. <laughs> <laughs> um so try your your it shows that you're not muted so i'm not really sure what happened um whoops he's gone he will be back i trust the fact that he will be back and uh bill you might want to get ready just in case <laughs> might have to bring you in so uh that's what i love about live shows it keeps keeps me on my toes i never know what's really going to happen chris is coming back and we're going to try to add him right now all right chris try your mic now that can you that hear is. me yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Yes. Cool. Sorry Thank about that. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you so much for joining us. I've, I've, like I said, I've been real excited to have you on. Uh, you did a great job also on the phenomenon. That was a that was a really good clip. You're part in that as well. And Thanks. I remember reaching out to James Fox. I said, James, can I have 
Chris, Chris's uh, information and, and, uh, but he was just so busy at the time. I was never able to get it. So if you would, for the person that has no idea who you are, there's a few of them out there, but a lot of people know who you are, but can you give your background basically and what got you interested in this topic? And speaking of background, I love your background. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the bunker um, back then. Yeah. Yeah. My old stuff. So basically, um, I'm 42 years old. I'm from Massachusetts. I've lived in Massachusetts most of my life. And I got interested in UFOs when I was a child. I read um, a book that my grandfather had on his shelf, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward Rappelt. And that book as a child absolutely captivated my imagination. And I read that book cover to cover. I read it so many times it became dog-eared and the cover fell off. But it wasn't until I was a teenager that I really got interested in investigating UFO sightings myself. Um, it started around 1993. I became absolutely obsessed with the idea of finding out where UFOs come from. And I back this was like a pre-internet era, so it was all snail mail. I joined all of the UFO study organizations that would have me as a member. Um, and I got involved with uh, MUFON and I became a member and an investigator for the local chapter of MUFON. And during the, throughout the 1990s, I investigated UFO sightings uh, in many places in the United States and Canada, but mostly right here in New England where I live. And after doing that for a little while, I started to focus on historical cases. So stuff that happened prior to 1969 became really my focus. And then of course, eventually I got involved with the Bridgewater Triangle, which is kind of the local anomalous area, a lot of UFO sightings and other high strangeness stuff reported there. And, um, you know, it's been, uh, I've kind of taken it from there. And it's been, it's been a lot of years of uh, looking at spooky stories and having fun doing it. That's right, right, right. Great stuff. Uh, now we are going to talk, I'd like to talk a lot about the Bridgewater Triangle because that's such a fascinating area and so many things happening there in the Huckamuck swamp area and and all that and uh many many things not just ufos but as far as the i'm like a fan of history i'll put it that way and you know my my the business that i have is researching fine art and antiques that i've been doing all my life so it kind of goes hand hand in glove the the two things so i'm always fascinating and fascinated in history and american history especially and so i'd like to start out by talking about that in particular, um, you have searched researched way back. Um, are are you, we talking colonial um, encounters or anything? Is there anything that appears like it could have been an encounter in colonial times? Absolutely, that's really how I kind of came to be focused on historical sightings because initially I was just interested in UFOs in Massachusetts in general. Um, but as I started to dig deeper and deeper into the past, I kept finding examples of UFO sightings, accounts from the early part of the 20th century, from the 19th century, the 18th century, and even older than that, that very much were you know, the same as modern UFO sightings. And to me, that really captured my interest because um, it seemed to me like it was kind of an important piece of information in terms of understanding this phenomenon. If UFO sightings didn't really start in 1947, if they didn't start 
in the space age or even in the 20th century, um, if UFO sightings have kind of been a constant throughout all of human history, um, that's important to know. And I think that's an important clue. So, so yeah, I documented, or I guess other UFO investigators, UFO historians had, had found this before. I can't really take credit for it, but um, I had written an article about a UFO sighting that took place in Massachusetts, in Boston, actually, around uh, 1638 or 1639. Um, this was a sighting where there were multiple witnesses. They were in a boat. They saw a great light that they described as being uh, in the figure of a swine that seemed to pull their boat back against the flow of the river. And then when they arrived at their destination, it was much later than they thought that it was going to be. So you've got this this missing time case, this physical effects case where the UFO seems to be drawing them backwards along the river. Plus, you've got this description that it's the figure of a swine, which sounds ridiculous. But if we think about um, maybe a lens shaped craft with four landing gear that might look like stubby pig legs, right? How would a person in 1639 describe this? Um, and so, you know, I, I had written an article about that that I had published on my own UFO website back in the 1990s in the old uh, free website, personal website days. And that article got widely republished and picked up by some other larger websites. And that kind of really uh, sort of kickstarted a lot of the historical stuff for me because I started to get uh, information and contacts from other people who were looking at UFO sightings from hundreds of years ago. And uh, it's just unbelievable how rich this story is and how much information there really is out there about UFO sightings from hundreds of years ago and how similar they are to UFO sightings of today. Yeah, I think that's all fascinating. And I remember I had an astronomer on once and he talked about the odds of our life being kind of at the social level we're at and then another entity coming from somewhere else that happens to be alive at this present time. The odds are, he said, the odds are even thinner, um, smaller because of, you know, we're just a little, it's just a little tiny fraction of time like that we're at right now compared to what a civilization could have been developed, you know, uh, with intelligent life uh, millions of years ago, you know, so that, you know, it brings up the, the question of the ancient aliens, you know, I mean, is that, uh, I think it's very possible we could have been visited all through our development, possibly. You know, I know it's awful hard to, to, uh, you know, look at anything as real evidence of that, but you know, that's possibilities, and you know, who knows? I mean, it's 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 fascinating, but uh, I love these uh, these old cases, and I know that a lot of times when you you read about the early cases, they are explaining what they're seeing in a fashion whether it's a, um, a shield in the sky and, you know, things like that, um, because it's all, they're using it and they're kind of, you know, it's a, it's a thing that your, your mind tends to do. You try to make sense of what you're seeing and only you can only make sense of what you're seeing with things that you know about, not something totally unusual, like, a, a disc, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know how to describe that, but, um, yeah, and, you know, there's and, this uh, phenomenon of, uh, cultural tracking, where we see UFO sightings over time. Uh, the, the UFOs are described in terms that are uh, kind of 
unique to that culture that's describing it or is it a form that they can relate to? So um, back in the age of sail, you've got these descriptions of flying ships dropping anchors. And then in the last years of the 19th century, the earliest years of the 20th century, it's phantom airships. And then in our space age, it's spaceships. Um, and there's, of course, multiple ways to look at that. Is the phenomenon, is the intelligence behind UFOs presenting itself to people in a form in which they can understand? Or is it just that people are describing these things based on their cultural framework? I don't know if there's really any way to be sure about that. Right. And that kind of goes along with the line also of one people like on the Ariel school phenomenon had talked about, they're getting like a message, like a telepathy message. And it always makes you think, okay, so how would they know the language of English or, you know, people in, in Russia, when that, they said that they heard messages in Russian, you know, I mean, it, it, it's so, so bizarre. I mean, uh, to, to try to visualize all that. Um, and speaking of, you know, historical times, uh, what about abductions? I mean, has there was there anything that could have that you've ever read about that made it sound like it could have been like an abduction type of situation? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I have a lot of experience with people who believe that they've been, you know, abducted by aliens or the term that that I came to use more often is experiencers. And um, I participated in hypnosis regression sessions where we we uh, hypnotized experiencers and and I watched them relive their experiences under hypnosis and it was extremely frightening. Um, I felt that what people told me without leading them differed in many ways, in some ways anyway, from kind of the mainstream narrative that I think a lot of people are familiar with from, from best-selling books and from movies. It was a lot stranger what they said. It was it was not a, a straightforward narrative about people being snatched in the night and harvesting their genetic material. It was, there was aspect, there were aspects of it that were almost spiritual or metaphysical, really kind of difficult to describe. Um, but we see echoes of that in all of human history. I mean, religious texts are often full of encounters with aliens or demons that have extremely strong parallels to what people told me when they said that they had been on board a UFO. Um, and even the case that I just mentioned with its, you know, missing time attribute, if we looked at that case in a 21st century framework, I think we would certainly label that a so-called abduction case. Um, there's really no end to it because the, the nature of these experiences where people said that they were on board the UFO they were so varied and so complex that it, you can find echoes of this in, in many other aspects of human experience, in spiritualism, in seances. Um, so you almost have to draw arbitrary lines and say, okay, this, this certainly couldn't be the same as a UFO abduction, but this other story, maybe it could be. Right, right. We have uh, every once in a while, I'll, I'll put up uh, questions in the chat. And uh, if you do want to ask a question, please, um, in, in your in chat, please do make all caps so I don't miss them. Uh, what case do you feel holds the most evidence or is the most compelling that you've come across in your research? Well, look, there's no proof 
of really anything that I'm talking about here. If UFOs yeah. were proven, if there was proof for what I'm saying, um, we wouldn't call them UFOs, right? It wouldn't be unidentified. The, the whole the whole subject is couched in this in this kind of twilight where it is a mystery. It really remains a mystery. So just to get out get that out there that there's there is no proof. There is tons and tons and tons of evidence. This tremendous body of evidence, uh, most of it, you know, in in recent decades, but stuff that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. If I had to point at one story that to me is the most compelling. Now, I understand this that this isn't a proven thing, so some people may may scoff at this, but I think it it's the Paul Trent photos from McMinnville, Oregon, in 1950. This farmer in Oregon, in a rural area long ago, took a photograph of something that is either a structured craft in the sky or it's, it's a fake. He either faked it or it's a UFO. There's no way that the object in these photographs could be um, a bird or the planet Venus or an airplane or anything else that you might mistake for a spaceship in the sky. And he took the photos, he showed them to some local people, but he wasn't even like motivated really to publish these photos. A newspaper reporter heard about the photos, came to his house, looked at the photos and said, uh, where, where are the negatives? And at that moment, their child was playing with the negatives, sitting under a desk. It, it wasn't something that they deemed, yeah, there's the photo. Um, and you know, there, as far, to my knowledge, there has never been any analysis of this photograph. I, I think the original negatives are now missing, so it limits what analysis can be done. But there's never been any analysis of this photograph that has um, shown it to be some kind of a fake. And Paul Trent, the photographer, went to his grave saying that it was real and that it wasn't a fake. So this is kind of where we're at with UFOs, you know. If there's going to, you know, what, what even could be proof? Do they have to land and, and talk to newspaper reporters? If there are photographs of structured craft in our atmosphere that are not anything made by a person or not anything that we can understand, I mean, that's, then, that, then they're real, right? And that's kind of what the McMinnville photograph means to me. If that photo is real, then UFOs are real. Yeah. Yep. I mean, like you said, it only takes one, you know, one real UFO and what, what will it take? I mean, how, how would you think the world, like if say for instance, all of a sudden there was this great sighting, there was multiple witnesses and great video and photos. Do you still think that, um, and, and the government actually came forward and said, or whatever part of the government would say, uh, we have no idea what this is. Um, how many people would do you think it would just be exactly the same? What what do you think would be the proof that we would need before um, most of society would buy that this is otherworldly? It would almost have to be like, you know, every city in the world had UFOs hovering in the sky that people could see. I mean, if I'll be honest with you, if our government came forward and said, uh, all right, we've got proof of UFOs. And we don't know what they are, you know, kind of along the lines of what has been coming out lately. Um, 
I'm still distrustful of that. I'm distrustful of our government. I understand that our government will use UFO hype as cover for their secret projects. And so, you know, I, I don't even know what would like. I'm convinced that UFOs are real because of my own personal experiences, because of what I learned doing the investigations, because of things that happened to me, because of witnesses who I talked to, so many of whom seemed so absolutely sincere. And if even one of those people was telling the truth, then that means that somebody had an encounter with some non-human intelligence that we can't explain. Um, that's proof enough for me. But and I, and I do think that society in general is becoming more accepting of the fact that UFOs represent a reality, um, especially like I alluded to earlier with the kind of disclosures or whatever you want to call them that have been coming out. But there are always going to be people that say, well, absolutely no way. And I don't yeah. think that's ever going to change. Yeah. I, I just heard uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson again on another interview and wailing away how it has to be, you know, software glitches and things like that. And uh, th there's there's always going to be those people there. Have you yourself ever had any any type of UFO sighting? Well, that's, that's a tough question for me to answer. Um, when I was a UFO investigator actively, um, rather than kind of where I'm at now, which is mostly looking at it almost as a folklore perspective and collecting stories and legends. Um, I had a lot of really weird things happen to me all the time, very many. And some of those things were seeing lights in the sky. Um, sometimes it even got to the point where I felt like I could predict where these things were going to appear and then I could see them. Hmm. Uh, I know it sounds crazy. It was really a strange time. It was a very frightening experience. But the thing is, is that when I was a UFO investigator, if people came to me and said, well, I saw a light in the sky and I don't think it was an airplane. I saw it at night and it moved in a way that uh, seemed really strange to me or it suddenly appeared or suddenly vanished. I didn't investigate those kind of cases because there are so many things in the night sky that can appear as a point source of light. Yeah. There's so many things that can be confusing or surprising if you really look at the night sky that I didn't feel like those things really could be um, put in one category or another. As strange as a report of a, of a light in the night might have sounded, I didn't feel like there was a way to absolutely rule out the possibility that it was a helicopter or a, a lantern that someone had set aloft or something like that. I was interested in uh, investigating sightings of structured craft, particularly made during the day. And I never had any UFO sighting like that. I never saw anything like that myself. But I did have, I would say, almost countless experiences during the time that I was going out and investigating UFO sightings, I would go to places where UFOs had just recently been seen and I would be watching the skies. And I saw things there. I saw things that despite all my training as a UFO investigator, despite my understanding of how things look in the sky, I couldn't explain those things. Um, but it's like I say, it's very tantalizing. Again, it becomes a matter of, of evidence, but not proof. You know, it's so tantalizing. Right. Right. I had, uh, uh, a sighting is how I got interested in, you know, this, this topic and doing the show. But uh, back in September 24th, I, I filmed something as I was coming back from a restaurant 
I'm pretty sure it's a drone. And I showed this on one of my shows before, but why not show it now? I'm going to pop it up right now. What the? actually filming the UFO, what the heck? That's a light reflect, a reflection, lens reflection, whatever. But that's not. Jeez. This is unbelievable. Those little things moving around, that's just the, the street lights and the lens. But this red thing, turns white is not well it's it's a lot longer than that but that's that's just a little clip of it and pretty much i'm pretty much thinking that was probably a drone but it was very windy that night and uh i never saw where it landed i ran over to where it should have uh i thought it would have landed but anyway so when you see something like that, that's just another light in the sky, right? Well, we don't know what kind of aircraft our military are flying right now. You know, they have a tremendous black budget. We know that they have secret projects that, that we don't know about. There hasn't been a major disclosure of a new aircraft technology from the military in a long time. But we know that their technology has advanced past that point. So... Uh, that really kind of mutter, muddies the waters, I think, nowadays, especially of UFO research. We just, there's technology that we know about but aren't familiar with, and there's technology that we don't even know about. Um, so to try to determine, uh, okay, this represents an encounter of, with a non-human intelligence versus uh, this represents an encounter with unfamiliar or unknown human technology, it becomes a real challenge. Right. There's a someone asked me the other day and I, I had always heard that it was unfounded about the TR3B. Do you know anything uh, that 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 was never something that never really existed? Is that do you know anything about that by chance? I don't know. I don't know if it existed or not. I mean, we've had um, over the last 20, 30 years, uh, countless stories about Project Aurora and all of these other uh, kind of hinted at secret projects, black budget stuff. But um, I think there's still just a lot of question marks about this stuff. And frankly, I do believe that our government does take advantage of UFO hype in order to yeah. give them some cover for testing these things. I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, you hear, you know, we talked earlier about McMinnville and, you know, it seems like the flavor of the day is triangles now. And, you know, uh, I've had people on the show that think every single triangle is a black project, you know, being tested or whatever. But um, but it doesn't account for the ones that happened back in the 1970s. You know, 1978, there was, you know, quite a triangle sighting. Uh, Lee Spiegel had an encounter, you know, around that time as well. And so the the thing that I always like to argue is, OK, so we do have these anti-gravity. Let's just say we do anti-gravity triangles. Uh, and we've had them since the 1970s. Wouldn't that be such an advantage over other countries? Why wouldn't we be using that in, say, warfare or something like that? 
I mean, have you ever thought about all that stuff? We we could be using them in warfare, and I think we wouldn't necessarily know about it. I mean, uh, we've seen through some leaks that have come out um, stuff that's happened in our wars that, um, you know, was not supposed to be how it was. I mean, and, and they're basically there are secrets that have been revealed, and I think there are secrets that haven't been revealed. The point that you're making about the shift towards triangular craft is definitely real. Um, even in the 1990s, um, relatively few people were telling me that they saw disc-shaped craft. I talked to a lot of people, including military pilots, other trained witnesses who saw the triangles. Um, of course, there are reports of triangular craft that go back for a long time. But I think any explanation of what UFOs are and represent needs to explain why in the 1950s and 60s, the disc shape was so predominant. And then in the 1970s, and especially in the 80s and the 90s, the triangles became predominant to the point that today, I think uh, triangles are, are really dominant. Um, I think that any explanation of UFO sightings has to take into account other ways that this phenomenon has changed over time as well. Um, the reports that I see now or that people tell me about of sightings that were relatively recent, they're, they're different even from the 1990s sightings. You know, in, in the 90s, I was investigating landing cases. I was investigating a lot of daylight structured craft cases. Um, and we used to talk about how, oh man, if only there was some way that we could put a phone, a camera, right? If we could put a camera in everybody's pocket then we maybe we would have so much better evidence. Maybe we would finally have proof. Well, now here we are decades later and everybody does have a camera in their pocket. And sure, right. there's new UFO photos and video that come out all the time, but, but it's not like the, the, for the most part, it's not like the structured craft sightings that I used to investigate. It's certainly not the landing type stuff. Um, so why did that change? You know, it, that's a question that, that I ask myself a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for for the record, what I saw was a, a perfect disc shape in uh, 2007. I mean, it looked exactly like the old the old fashioned flying saucers, maybe because I'm an antiques guy. I don't know. But anyway, that's what I saw. Here's a question that just popped up. Uh, what do you think they're here for? I, I, I always like that question. And well, look, the thing the thing about this is, is that. Um... This is a really difficult question for me to answer, and there's not an easy way for me to say this, and there's not a way for me to say this that's going to come across as being convincing, but I'm going to give you the honest conclusion that I came up with after years of investigating UFO sightings. I came to the conclusion that these sightings represent encounters with a non-human intelligence that's based on this planet. I didn't come up with evidence that suggested that UFOs were from space. The evidence that I was confronted with suggested that they are from here. And so um, not only do I believe that they're from here, but I believe that they basically have always been here, that they have been here for as long as we have been here. Um, and I think that they interact with human beings in a deliberate way. I think that what what we might perceive as a bunch of random chance encounters actually is part of a strategy that they have. It's part of a 
deliberate plan that we can't really understand, that maybe we aren't equipped to understand or that we can only guess at. But I think that their, their appearances to us and their interactions with us is all a part of a deliberate design and that um, I think that it is negative for human beings. And um, so there are people in this field that I respect tremendously who totally disagree with me. And there are people who've had personal experiences that I really believe and that I, I think that they have insight into this and they believe that this is a positive thing for people. But that's not what that's not what I found. And that's not where the evidence eventually led me. So um, I think that UFO settings represent a non-human intelligence based on this planet. And I think that they that they want to control us. And I think that they want to affect us in a negative way. As crazy as that sounds, I, I know. Well, I don't I don't think it's absolutely crazy. And I'm going to tell you why um, that I don't think it's crazy. I just listened to. The Theory of Everything is a YouTube channel with Kurt. I, I can't pronounce his last name. And by the way, he'll be on uh, this show sometime next year. Kurt will be. But um, he interviewed Lou Elizondo. And um, it was a great interview. I One of the best interviews I've heard of Lou Elizondo. And there was a part in there where Lou brings up uh, what if uh, we've always thought that we're at the top of the food chain, the smartest beings on the earth, but what if the reality is that was not true? And the way he puts it, he's going to be on next month on this show, and I'm going to get him to expand into that. But he was kind of leading along the lines of what you're talking about. So I find this uh, really fascinating. Um, he didn't go into much detail, but what he, he kind of posed the question, what if we find out that we are not the highest thing on the food chain, so to speak. Um, so I think it's an interesting, I don't think it's outlandish. I think, um, and, and I like to have, I, I like to pose or hear that question because it's really an important question to hear different people's opinions. So I'm going to ask you this, the, the evidence you say, what type of evidence would lead you to think that? Well, uh, first of all, there was my own personal experience where um, I had a lot of really frightening and negative things happen to my own life and to people very close to me when I started to sort of what, what I believe was I was getting closer to the truth about this thing. During the time that I believed that UFOs were aliens from space, I did have some strange experiences, but they were more in line with you know, I thought that the government was tapping my phone, for example. I thought that the government was taking files that disappeared out of my filing cabinet and were later replaced with photocopies. Only later did I really start to realize, OK, I don't think that our government really knows what this stuff is. And I don't think our government is um, bothering with intimidating a, a teenage boy who has joined MUFON and is subscribed to a UFO magazine. Um when I started to kind of, I think, have a more clear picture and a better understanding of what was really going on, I started to have extremely uh, negative things happening to me in my own life and to people around me. There were people that I knew that uh, got institutionalized. There were people that I knew who died. And um, I can't remember exactly who it was, but there is a famous quote about UFO research that if you want to find the truth about UFOs, 
follow the trail of bodies. I mean, there have been a lot of people who have lost their lives in really unusual circumstances um, that were, I think, maybe getting close to the reality of this thing. And then if we kind of zoom out even from that, if we look at the history of UFO sightings, particularly reports of people who believe that they were on board the UFOs or who were in contact with the UFO occupants, we see again and again um, people being ruined, people dying. Um, I've I'd written about this some and, and done some interviews about it where I kind of talked about um, my conclusions and I got I got some emails from somebody who was I thought really well informed. It was a name that I didn't recognize, but he had some questions that I thought were really on point and uh, really kind of in line with with where my research has led me. So I enjoyed corresponding with this person until one day I asked him. I said, "Listen, um, you know, I got to ask what what's your background on this stuff? What is your angle?" And he said, well, I was afraid of the day that you were going to ask me that question, because the reality is, is that uh, I'm a Baptist minister. And I think that UFOs are the demons that are described in the Bible. And I use material that you provide me uh, for sermons to my congregation. And I didn't respond to his email and I never talked to him again because that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. I personally am not a religious person. Um, and at the time it just sounded so ridiculous and I dismissed it out of hand as being absurd. But looking back on it years later, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I'm not saying that I believe that UFOs are demons to be clear, but there are parallels there. There absolutely are. And the parallels that are there are really no less compelling than any other part of the UFO narrative than anything about UFOs being from space. And so, um, you know, I think that, it can be very easy for, for, I understand, I obviously am a human being. I have my own biases. Everybody does. And it can be easy to pick and choose information that fits your proposal. But I never wanted to do that. I always viewed myself as being a scientist. And objectivity was so important to me. And looking at things objectively and not trying to prove any one hypothesis or another, that's, you know, that's what I came up with. And, uh, and in fact, I eventually took a, a pretty big step away from active UFO investigation for a long time, partially because it became too frightening for me, but also because I felt that I couldn't be objective anymore because I had to come to terms with what was happening to me and realize um, some of this is about me. Some of this is about things that, that I'm, I'm experiencing and that really changed things for me. Well, I do remember when I first started this, uh, someone I was talking to said, if you look deeply into the UFO topic, it will look deeply back at you. Have you ever heard that expression? I have. And I believe that 100 percent. And, you know, it's really interesting because uh, I'm not going to drop names because I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody. But there's somebody who I worked with um, as an investigator for years who I have tremendous respect for. And he has since uh, moved away and I fell out of touch with him for a long time. And more recently, I have taken a more active interest in kind of coming to grips with some of the crazy stuff that happened to me and what my life was like in those years. And so I reached out to him and he was thrilled to hear from me. And I said, 
you know, we never really talked about this. We never talked about the really strange things that happened to us. And he was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I started to kind of list some of the really strange things that he and I had experienced together. And his response was kind of like, well, I don't, I don't remember it that way. I don't remember it at all in some cases. But I know that these things happened. I have notes from the 1990s that describe these things. There were other people that this stuff happened to. There were other people that were there and that saw this stuff. And uh, I wonder if, because I told him, I said, you know, I think that I became so focused on UFOs and put so much mental energy into it that I popped up on the radar of whatever this thing is. And he said, well, why didn't that happen to me? And I think that it did. But I wonder if maybe he isn't on some level not willing to admit it to himself or he's not ready to come to grips with what that would mean. Um, because it is really hard. You know, it took it took me a long time to make any sense of it at all in my mind. And, you know, I think everybody who most of the people that I know who have been active in UFO investigation. They have their own stories of the time that, um, you know, my phone died or all the photographs didn't come out or whatever it is. You know, everybody has these stories and these stories add up to something. You know, they mean something. And UFO, UFOs as space aliens doesn't give us an explanation for that kind of stuff. I don't think. Right. You know, I, I talked about or I just mentioned Lou Elizondo, another interview I listened to him. Uh, talk about that a superior at the Pentagon told him that he thought that it was demonic, which is really bizarre. I mean, you know, to hear that someone on that level would think, you know, but I do, I do realize a lot of people do have religious beliefs and it's probably like the catch all for not understanding something and being scared of something is that it's demonic. Maybe that's, that's why it's used. That term is used. I don't know. Look, demons could represent another attempt at an explanation for for what we call UFOs, you know, or what we call aliens or whatever it is. That that aliens and demons could be two different interpretations of the same stimulus. And maybe neither of those are really right, right? Or maybe one or the other is is, is more correct than the other. I think we might just have to understand that there's no explanation for a lot of this stuff. Human beings are having experiences that I think are founded in objective reality that are real, that they are able to remember and recount sincerely. And, and we don't know what it is. And, uh, and I don't think we're going to know, you know, I personally have become really disheartened I don't think that we're ever going to have an answer for this stuff. You know, we're, even if we talk about interdimensional or, or demonic, these terms are really an attempt to explain a mystery, I think, with another mystery. And in the end, it's just question marks. Something that I wanted to, to get in here while I'm thinking about it, something that I think is really important and that is mirrored by things that happened to me is an experience that was related by John Keel in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. He's talking about seeing UFOs hovering up in the sky in the uh, in the hills over West Virginia. And he he is trying to signal to them with his flashlight. And so he signals to them in Morse code, I think the letter L, and they move to the left. And he signals to them in Morse code R, 
and they move to the right. So how could they understand the language? How could they understand the spelling? Morse code, it's all so ridiculous. So it occurred to him, I'm going to come up with an arbitrary code where if I shine the light in a triangle, it means go left. And if I shine it in a circle, it means go right. And he did that and they moved. So he realized it wasn't that they understood Morse code or anything like that. It was that they were reading his mind. They were in contact with his mind. And that is, I believe, you know, to put it in, in as honest and blunt terms as possible, I believe that I focused so heavily on UFOs so much that I eventually became in mental communication with whatever this intelligence is. And I think that they were they were trying to harm me and I think they were trying to control me. And I'm glad and relieved that I made a decision to, to back away from some of the things that I was doing so that um, I wouldn't have this hanging over me anymore. Um, and I think wow. that everybody who's involved in UFO research I know that people are going to scoff and listen to this, but I think it's very dangerous. And I think that everybody who's involved needs, needs to be very careful and needs to be cognizant of the fact that there can be really negative things that can happen to people as a result of looking at this stuff. I'm, I'm convinced of that, certainly. Well, you know, uh, so this this thought uh, that you have, that they're possibly already here, it it kind of makes me think about, I mentioned earlier about telepathy that these school children, but not only them, many people claim to have had with these entities, and that is take care of the planet. Well, if they're sharing the planet, then, I mean, if they were here, then that would even make more sense. Or Michael Masters I, says he thinks, or Dr. Michael Masters thinks that they're from the future, and that would make sense in that case as well, possibly. I don't know. Look, I, I agree with you that um, there are elements of their messages that can be used to um, try to extrapolate maybe what these things could be. But I really think that for me, looking at all of the people that have been in communication with this stuff and all of the messages that they've conveyed and how this has affected people and what the actual practical effects and ramifications have been on people from this stuff. I think that they are deceptive. I think that they're lying. And I, I don't take what they say at face value. I think that they want us to think that they're aliens. You know, I think that they want us to think certain things and that they act somehow in some way that we can't understand as a control mechanism. You know, I, I personally have given up on trying to understand their motivations. I think this is a, a metaphor that a lot of people have probably used in the past, but that of ants in an ant farm, trying to guess at the motivation of the person who puts the sugar water in there. They're never going to figure it out because it's just a total other level of being that they just can't grasp. And I think that's where we're at here. Very well could be. Very well could be. What, why, but using your thought process again here, why would they need a structured craft? I think that the appearance of the structured craft is a deliberate ruse. I think that um, they appear in various guises, they manifest themselves in various different forms in order to get people to think one thing or another about them. Uh, we alluded earlier to the Bridgewater Triangle, which is this area in Massachusetts, which has a lot of UFO sightings. 
It also has had a lot of Bigfoot sightings over time. And there's a lot of haunted houses there. And there's all kinds of monster sightings and creepy creatures and stuff that people see out there in the swamp. And when I started to look at UFO sightings there, I was only interested in the UFO sightings. And so many times people would report to me, oh, you know, there was another weird thing that happened to me. You know, my house is haunted or the neighbors said they saw a Bigfoot creature out in the back 40 or whatever it is. And I would sweep that stuff under the rug. I thought it was embarrassing. I thought it detracted from the credibility of the witness. Um, eventually, I was forced to, to kind of admit to myself, okay, well, you know, look, there's not better evidence for the UFO stuff in this region than for the, the Bigfoot stuff in this region or the ghosts or whatever. And, and I can't really be, claim to be looking at this in a scientific way and, and just forget about the fact that what are the chances that this is a coincidence that when I go to investigate a UFO sighting, there's a Bigfoot sighting that's associated with it in some way, or the many people who told me they saw a UFO and Bigfoot at the same time. You know, I'm, I'm using the term Bigfoot here as a, as kind of a colloquial term, right? It, people know what I'm talking about. It's this hairy monster, giant, whatever it is. Um, and so I came to the conclusion, all right, well, I better start looking at this stuff too. And I looked at that stuff and came to the conclusion that there is an absolutely a link between these two things, um, between all of these things. And what if there's an intelligence that's trying to control how we think about things, We're trying to control how we act in some way that we can't grasp at because it's so alien to our human intelligence that we can't figure out what their motivation could possibly be. We just can't guess at it. And what if this intelligence can use energy somehow to manifest itself in different ways. What if that structured craft isn't really a metal craft? What if that Bigfoot isn't really a hairy monster that lives in the woods, um, but is a manifestation of something that is presented to you, that is in contact with your mind, that's responding to how you're responding to it. And that is what I think is happening here. You know, it's a, uh... It, it it makes me wonder, do you think that these, whatever they are, are organic or do you think it's like an energy instead? Well, I think that it's, I think that it's using energy to show itself. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we have so many UFO sightings that are in the vicinity of high tension power lines. I also don't think that it's a coincidence that there are so many UFO sightings that are that take place adjacent to places that were important to prehistoric people. Um, I'll give you kind of a, a, a sort of a really quick overview of, of kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, I'm really interested in these uh, man-made stone constructions that are all over New England that I think were built by prehistoric Native Americans. These structures take many forms. There are stone rows, like what we would call a stone wall. There are piles of stone and there are also chambers which are man-made underground caves of various size. They are very old. Um, I have, uh, you know, I've visited many, many of these things over the years. I'm really interested in this aspect of what I believe to be prehistory in New England. It is a fact that nobody really knows how old these things are. That is to say, there are, there are archaeologists that believe all of these things date from colonial or post-colonial time. 
there's not, you know, a parallel to UFOs here is that I don't think that there is really any absolute proof that these are pre-colonial, but I think there's a tremendous amount of evidence that they are. And there are magnetic anomalies to be detected at these places. Um, just holding a simple compass in your hand and entering one of these structures, you can often see that compass needle start to move, sometimes really dramatically. So there's, there's some kind of electromagnetic situation of some kind happening there that we can measure with simple instruments. And I believe that in prehistoric times, before TV, before 4G, before radio, before electricity, you know, I'm sitting in a room right now full of electric lights and my phone. And if I had uh, a meter, I could read all of this stuff now. Well, people in prehistoric times, they didn't have any of that energy around. But I believe that they could detect subtle changes in the Earth's energy, in the Earth's electromagnetic field, and that they chose these places to be sacred and that they made these places into places of ritual. And then today, um, we see UFO sightings taking place in these places. And why? If they're aliens from space, why is there a correlation between places where they're seen and places that were important to prehistoric people? But if they're using energy to show themselves, then maybe there is something about the energy that was important to prehistoric people that can be used by this phenomenon in order to manifest itself. Or maybe um, prehistoric people created these uh, constructions at their sacred sites at places that were sacred because they had encounters there with some kind of intelligence, like the encounters that we have there with some kind of intelligence, only in a different form. You know, we can, uh, th so much of this, there's, there's no proof of it and it's just all speculation, but, but th I think, like I say, I think there's evidence for it. And, um, you know, that, those are kind of the conclusions that I came up with. Very, very interesting. We're going to be going into break in just a second. I, when I was, I was in Russia a few times and got to look at the early dolmens. They're called dolmens and they're stone structures with a little hole in them that it, a body, unless it's a real, you know, a child couldn't really fit into them. Very curious things. And you're right about stone. They have absolutely no way to date it. You know, the stone is a million years old and it's not like pottery where you can, or, or wood or something like that, something organic where you can get a date on it. Um, we are ready to go into break. It's a four-minute break. And uh, the break uh, is over at KGRA Radio, but I'm going to be going to be playing a video. And this is Elton I talked to. He had a schoolyard um, UFO sighting in the 1960s in Oakland, California. And we're going to roll with that. So um, over at KGRA Radio, we'll be back in about four minutes. The year is 1963. I'm in the third grade at Franklin Grammar School. We're at recess, and uh, I played marbles the entire half hour. And we were all waiting for the uh, the uh, recess bell to ring to go back to, into class. And I'm playing with my marbles with a big pocket full of them and talking to a buddy of mine. And the bell rings, and everybody starts piling into the classes. And I wasn't in a huge rush to go back to class because I know we had an exam of some kind. <laughs> so something caught my eye. I looked up. It was a bright, sunny day about 11 o'clock uh, before uh, noon. And I see this huge golden thing just sitting in the air, making no noise. 
and it's it's so bright I could only look at it for two or three seconds, maybe not even that long at a time. And I noticed the guy I was with couldn't look at it. It was too bright for him, so he went. And after about twenty or thirty minutes, I, I I couldn't bear to look at it. It was so painful. And I looked around and I noticed it was so huge. The craft itself was blocking the sun. So I could remember thinking to myself, how could it be so bright under there? It was solid gold, like polished 24 karat gold. And it was very convoluted and sculptured from below. And it seemed like uh, the height, it seemed like I could throw a marble and hit it. It was probably 100 feet up. So let me just ask you a couple of things. First of all, this is in Oakland, California, for, for exactly. people listening. And when you saw this, uh, you were out in the playground, you wanted to go in. How many kids would you say uh, were out there at the time? And how many were, was there yelling and anything else going on? Yeah, was, there was, must have been 100 kids on the lot. And uh, the bell rang. Everybody started piling into class. And by the time I got to class, I was the only one on the uh, on the pavement because I I just couldn't believe it. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. There's no way in the world I could have imagined something like that. It was so bright and beautiful, but it was frustrating because I could only look at it for two or three seconds at a time. Then I had to look down and rest my eyes for a second. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, did you tell teachers, your parents or anyone? Gosh, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't tell anybody for four or five years. Ah. And then I, I looked uh, to see if I could find if there were any other sightings that year, because it was just incredible. It was just incredible. So then I finally, I said, man, this thing is frustrating. And I never felt scared because it was just sitting there. And I kept thinking, how could it possibly just sit there and not make any sounds? Let's hold it up. And Did, uh, that, did you see it leave? No, I didn't. I had to get back to class because um, I I think I might have spent seven or eight minutes. I was late to class. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that this is all really fascinating. And uh, so we're at the end of our time. But thank you so much, Elton. I really appreciate you talking about it. And uh, maybe we can talk about this more sometime because it really. Yeah, I have the other sighting, too, I can tell you about. I I don't know if you I think you might have mentioned it yeah we talked about it on the yeah. phone we'll, we'll we'll have you back on again all right all, all right, right. take show. care thank yeah. you all right welcome back my guest a fascinating conversation is uh with uh chris Pittman. welcome back chris thanks uh, yeah, so this is uh, this is all fascinating. That's why I like to have. I, I didn't know you're going to go into this direction, I, and I think it's, a, it's very interesting. And I don't discount anything because I certainly don't believe that anyone out there really truly has an answer. And the theories are all we can really rely on. But um, so let's just say that it's possible. Whatever these things are, are just some type of energy, and they have way ways of, uh, of cloaking and ways of, um, of making us think that they are something else. Um, where would they, you know, this is, again, nothing you can prove. It's all just, you know, your theories and thoughts on this. 
But where would something like that, I don't know if the right word is called housed, where would they be housed? Where would they, uh, where would they hang out? You know, that's, that's, it's a tough question. It's, I don't really have an answer for it. Um, I don't think that these things, you know, again, like you say, look, I don't think anybody has an answer. Nobody has an answer. These things are unidentified. So um, it, there's also, there's a possibility that some of these things could be uh, aliens from space and structured craft. It is certainly possible that some percentage of UFO sightings represent that. And, and some of them could also represent this um, based on this planet intelligence that I'm talking about. But I think, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's ever going to be possible for us to walk up to the UFOs that are responsible for abducting people that are responsible for the majority of the sightings that I've investigated um, and just kick the tires and take a piece of metal off. I don't think that these things exist in our, they exist in an objective reality and that we can see them, we can record them, we can measure them, but I don't think they exist in our physical reality in the sense of um, that we could fly a, a UFO into a, a hangar and take it apart and find out what makes it go. You know, there are, there are certainly things that we don't know about. There's, we don't know what's at the bottom of a lot of the ocean. We don't know, um, you know, there's w- what might be under the ground in some places. So there's always the possibility that there could be some kind of terrestrial race that we don't know about is absolutely laughable as that sound. I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if something like that was somehow found and, and confirmed to be real. But I think the stuff that I'm talking about, it exists in some realm, you know, like I say, interdimensional or pick whatever other term you want to describe something that nobody knows what it is or what it really means. Yes, we're, we're uh, actually in the uh, another half hour or so, I'm going to be opening the phone lines. We're having a couple of questions pop in here, and I'm sure people would I want to talk to you. Uh, that is a screen call would be coming in. Um, so anyway, here's another question that pops up here. And I believe I talked about this myself just a minute ago. Michael Masters is thinking about uh, this question here. Do you think some of these are us from the future? If there is ever going to be time travel, then time travelers would be here now. Yeah. And and I had another thought on that. And I actually threw this at Michael Masters the other day kind of in a joking way, we were kind of joking back and forth. But I said, well, you know, perhaps we get totally wiped out from AI or say we get wiped out from nuclear war or whatever, and um, millions of years from now, but not so far into the future where the earth, I mean, the sun is going to expand and, you know, it'll it'll be over then anyway. But uh, before that, perhaps a new species develops from scratch that is traveling back to see what this species was like. You know, I mean, why, why couldn't it be that, you know, if time is time and you can travel in it. Oh, we lost our audio, Chris, Chris, we can't hear you. Um, you may have to do whatever you did last time. And that might be mean going out. So, uh, and if you have to go out and come back and go ahead, keep talking, still can't hear you. All right. And if worse comes to worse, um, I'm going to uh, text you the phone number here. So I'm going to pop up this other question here that um, I will post to him when he comes back. 
And that question is from Esoteric Gold. Has our guests ever had an increase or decrease in health issues during a UFO experience? Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you now. So this is really weird because I didn't do anything. So obviously, as you can tell, this is the demonic UFO aliens. It has to be. All right. Men in black or the government. It could be the government. Could be the Uh, government. They don't want this information getting out. That's the. That's right. That's right. They're going to mess with Um, my audio. Visual can stay. (laughs) So uh, here's a question up here. You can see it in the chat. I just read it. Have you ever had any increase or decrease in health um, experiences during UFO? Well, Uh, here's a here's a fun one. Uh, So it was in the year 2000 that things kind of came to a head for me with UFO study. Um, I had gotten to the point where I was convinced that I was in mental communication with UFO occupants. I could predict where UFOs were going to appear. And then other people in some cases would see them. Everybody in my life at that time was having absolutely bizarre encounters. Uh, my, my girl, my girlfriend at the time kind of had some things happen to her that caused her life to change forever in some ways. Um, and I, I was like, all right, enough is enough. And I stu- I basically was like, I'm not going to read about UFOs anymore. I'm not going to think about UFOs anymore. I'm, I'm going to stop talking to my friends. I'm going to um, basically start a new UFO-free life for a while anyway. And I was still waking up in the morning knowing things that I hadn't known the night before about UFOs. And mm-hmm. so I felt that I was still getting communications from these UFO occupants. And uh, they started to become fewer and fewer in frequency. And then I got what I felt was a final communication. And the message of the final communication was, you need to give up materialism, you need to give up all of your belongings, and you need to study uh, like Eastern religions and spirituality. And if you don't do it, you will die in 2012. And, um, so, uh, I thought about it and I decided that I'm not going to give up all of my stuff and I'm not going to jump through their hoop. I'm not going to do what they want me to do. And I'm not going to start studying Eastern religions. So, so be it. Maybe I'll die in 2012. Right. So in 2011, I gave a lecture at a local, to a local paranormal club. Uh, people that were interested in UFOs, as well as a host of other things, some of which I think are interesting and some of which I thought were uh, ridiculous. And at the end of my talk, some people who were in the audience wanted to talk to me. And there was a woman who uh, identified herself as a psychic. And she told me that there was a spot on my aura, which sounded so absurd and laughable. But these people had been very nice to me. And so I was going to be polite. And I said, oh, well, geez, I don't I don't really know anything about that. I don't know about a spot on my aura. And they said, well, think about it. Is there anything that you can think of, maybe something even related to your UFO work, where you felt that maybe there was some negative thing, a curse or something? You know, I can't remember the exact wording. But I said, well, you know, it, it is funny that you say that because um, I felt like aliens told me that I was going to die next year. And I'm saying this in the most lighthearted way possible because this is all such an absurd thing, right? I'm not trying to discount, you know, before you freak out, listen to the end of the story because I'm not trying to discount anything that anybody said here. 
And so the woman said, well, I can remove spots from, from human auras. And I would, if you're okay with it, I would like to remove the spot from your aura. And I said, all right, sure, go for it. She said, well, I've got someone else here that I'm training how to do this. Do you, do you mind if she works with us on this? And I was like, how long is this going to take? She's like, it's not going to take very long. It's very fast. I said, okay, sure, go for it, whatever. So the woman took my hand into her hand and I was feeling so awkward. My skin was crawling. I was like, this is madness. She took my hand and she started to press with her thumb into the palm of my hand. And she started to say something. And it's like I went into a trance. And the next moment that I remember, she was like, okay, it's done. It's, it was a success. Your spot is gone. And I have never felt so good in my entire life. I felt like I could run through walls. I felt like, I mean, I can't even describe how good this thing made me feel. I thanked the woman profusely, never knew her name. Um, and I had been planning that night to go out, go home and go to sleep because I was feeling worn out. And instead, I like went and hung out with my friends and like partied all night long and had a, a fantastic time because I had never had so much energy in my whole life. So what the heck was that? You know, I don't have an answer to what that represents or means. Wow. Do you have her number? You said you're on No, I know. Right. Like, it's like, where's yeah. that woman now? I could use that woman right now. But the whole, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, there are things about this that I don't want to know. And I don't want to become an expert on spots on human auras, you know, but, but maybe that's the answer. Maybe there's something about spot. If you, if you researched enough about removal of spots on human auras, you could, you could develop some next level of understanding about, uh, UFO abductions, right? I'll, I'll leave that for someone else to yeah. follow up. Uh, it's just, this whole thing is so insane, really. It's so bizarre. Well, you know, if I hadn't heard something similar to that, I would think is it would be a little way out there. But I have heard uh, actually something very similar to that, which is uh, quite, quite amazing, really. Now, this question here, you never said that there's like living species. This person want to know how many uh, different species are currently live underground. We never really talked about that. Um, is that, well, that's look, not, yeah. You know, there are people that, that get into this, um, sort of, uh, how to even call this thing, you know, uh, where you're assigning specific names to different types of aliens. I mean, this has been done with UFOs where there's names for different shapes of craft. I think it's very interesting to look at stuff from the early days of what we now see kind of as formal ufology, where you had people who were getting into the taxonomy of the shapes, looking at the shapes, trying to identify similarities, basically almost trying to figure out like models of these things, you know, the way that somebody might, if you were looking at cars in, in a certain area, find out what kind of cars people drive. And all of this stuff has basically, I think, resulted in more questions and answers. I don't think we know any more or, or less about UFOs, if we could categorize these entities as greys or the mantis types or, um, you know, deros that live underground, right? The, the, the shaver mystery stuff. I mean, it's just, there's so much lore. But it's, and the lore can be fun. I, I enjoy talking about this stuff and I enjoy thinking about it. But at some point you have to ask yourself, or you have to ask, I guess, in general, what's the reality here? What is real? What is really going on? And once you enter that realm, the uh, all of the neatly tied up answers just vanish and you're just left with questions. Yeah. 
Um, I think sometimes we don't know the right questions to ask. Um, here's a, here's an interesting question. I also thought about this too. There has been talk about crash retrieval, you know, even um, at the upper level, supposedly people have been talking about that. Uh, but I, um, that would, that, that's just kind of another thing along the line here. But what about, um, let's see, Belinda wanted to know, what about the high level of radioactivity emerging from UFOs at the landing sites? Well, there's um, there's some great documented cases of that. I'm sure that um, people are familiar with the Cash Landrum case where a person was really uh, made gravely ill, apparently by radiation being emitted from one of these things that was at a very low altitude. Um, then again, there are a lot of great UFO landing cases where there was no radioactivity reported. So um, are some of these things spacecraft with aliens in them that maybe use a radioactive propulsion? And then maybe, or are some of these things government craft that have radiation traces left behind? Um, unfortunately, you know, it would be great if we could make this strong link, a one-to-one link where every time there's a UFO on the ground, every time a person gets within a certain number of feet of a landed UFO, there's radiation effects, but that's not really how it works. So, um, you know, so it's, it's, again, there's evidence there. And I certainly think that the radiation that's been detected in some of these high profile cases, uh, is a very strong indicator that there's something going on here strong evidence, but it's not necessarily proof of any one theory or another. It's just, it's just another clue that maybe doesn't really lead us to a final answer. Yes, I agree on that. So let's jump right into the Bridgewater triangle. And for the person that has never heard of it, can you explain the geographical area and then we'll get into what happens, uh, what people are claiming. We touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to talk on that more if we can. Okay. Um, basically, the Bridgewater Triangle is an area of southeastern Massachusetts that was rather strictly defined by Lauren Coleman around 1978 as uh, an area of several hundred square miles uh, between certain towns. Um, but I'm just going to kind of say honestly like i appreciate that lord coleman gave a name to this thing and i appreciate that he created some boundaries but i don't necessarily think that the boundaries that he drew are really the boundaries of the area that we're talking about so um i would kind of like to sort of get away from that definition and sort of propose my own definition that the bridgewater triangle is an area of southeastern massachusetts that centers around a place called the hockamock swamp and radiates out from there. The Hockamock Swamp is this massive, massive wilderness area that's really kind of unique. It's the largest, one of the largest swamps of its kind in the entire northeastern part of the United States. One of very few places in Massachusetts where there are still old growth trees, simply because people were never able really to get in there with machinery to cut them down. Um, it's got billions and billions of gallons of water flowing through it. It's this really uh, important wilderness area, this diverse ecological place. And it's also sort of ground zero for all kinds of uh, really weird stories um, where, you know, as mentioned, the UFO stuff, 
Bigfoot, ghosts, uh, people seeing aliens, people, um, you know, having every kind of strange encounter that you can think of, satanic cults and cattle mutilations and, um, you know, the whole gamut of, of weird experience that people can have. Yeah, you can see here um, a map that kind of shows where it is in, in Massachusetts in general. But I think there are areas that are adjacent to those triangular boundaries that have a very high level of paranormal activity and other areas that are within them that have a very low level. And to, to be clear for people, this is an area that uh, outside of the Hockamock Swamp, there are rural areas, but there are also, there's the city of Taunton in there. There's very densely built up suburban areas and there's a lot, a lot of people that live there. Um, and so it's not like you can just go there and suddenly you're in some kind of uh, TV show, Twilight Zone, where, um, you know, Bigfoot is chasing you and there's there's lights in the sky, you know, but um, y there is this body of sighting reports that have taken place over time. Um, there, there's definitely something going on there. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Right. I do remember there was, wasn't the police involved in like investigating satanic rituals there? There was one uh, police officer in particular, Alan Alves, who kind of specialized in investigating satanic stuff. Um, I think that's a very complex story, the, the satanic stuff in particular, where you had probably like real Satanists who were maybe harmless, uh, active in there in the 1980s. And then you maybe had some very dangerous uh, people and, and criminals that were maybe adjacent to the satanic stuff. There was also the whole satanic panic of the 80s, which I think we now realize that some of what people were afraid of with regard to Satanism at that time wasn't real, but some of it was. And certainly there were there were murders that took place in that area. And there's somebody who's in prison uh, even today. It's a it's a very complex story. Right. And am I confusing this place where there were lights that were seen like um, on a path or something? Is that was that also in the Bridgewater? Triangle? Oh, absolutely. There are. Uh, I think you're probably thinking of a scene in the Bridgewater Triangle documentary uh, where a witness describes seeing sort of these orbs um, that's it yeah over uh, a bridge in in Bridgewater but there are so many of these lights stories there are so many of these orbs stories these phantom uh, glowing lights very commonly reported in this region um, and you know again the area where in the Bridgewater Triangle documentary where that witness reported seeing, those orbs, I had somebody report to me relatively recently uh, seeing a, a structured craft type UFO right in that same area. You know, so you and uh, additionally, there were uh, there were sightings of Bigfoot type creatures right across the street from there. So you've got this area that is smaller than a city block where around the same time in the same span of years not on the same day or in the same week but in the same years you could have a structured craft type ufo sightings or more than one sightings of these orbs glowing lights uh close to the surface of the ground seen at close range and then uh people seeing bigfoot creatures so it's like what what is going on here yeah uh, from what i understand it's like the the heaviest area for the so-called bigfoot sightings 
yeah, there like, are there are some other areas in uh, in Massachusetts and elsewhere in New England where people say that they see these things, but there certainly has been a very dense concentration of Bigfoot type uh, sightings in the Bridgewater Triangle, dating back to the early 1970s and and probably older than that as well. Earlier, you mentioned that um, near these stone structures, like there's that uh, that one. I'm trying to think where it is in Massachusetts. That's could be very early. There's a lot going on in that one underground little like stone structures and things. What's it called? You're thinking about the stone chamber in like uh yeah. Uh, Stonehenge, in Massachusetts. New England Stonehenge, I think they call it or something. Oh, like America that. Stonehenge in North Salem, New Hampshire. Oh, it's in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's just over the line. Yeah. yeah. Uh that place is great. I would encourage people to go there and check it out. That's actually how um, I kind of got interested in this subject when I was a child. I watched an episode of the 1970s TV show In Search Of that talked about America's Stonehenge. And I went there when I was a teenager, was absolutely fascinated about it. Um, and New uh, America's Stonehenge, it's, it's a really interesting place. There's a lot to learn there. There's a lot to see. There's also a lot of questions. There's, there's understanding that a lot of the stonework there was moved around in the 19th century and, and later as well. And people who maybe excavated there, um, some of those people might have done more harm than good, building things that they thought were there based on their ideas that this stuff was built by Irish monks in the year 1000 or whatever it was. But there are very, very many similar places in Massachusetts and elsewhere in New England where you can see these underground stone chambers or other enigmatic stone structures that that I believe were built by prehistoric Native Americans. I've become really interested in archaeology and in um, the story of the people that were here before the colonists arrived in the 10,000 years about which we really know very little. And there's been a lot of uh, focus on that with regard to the Bridgewater Triangle. And some of that, I think, is totally valid because there are areas... Uh, in and, and adjacent to the Bridgewater Triangle, where there were as many people living there 5,000 years ago as there are now. Some of these places wow. were among the most densely habited um, areas in the northeastern part of what is now the United States hundreds or thousands of years ago. And, and I think that that is something that is worth looking at when it comes to the paranormal stuff. Uh, but unfortunately, I think a lot of attention goes to King Philip's War which was a conflict between um, the colonists and some native groups against other native groups in 1675 and 1676. It was a very bloody war that wound up basically spelling the end uh, for people who lived in Massachusetts of a life way that had existed for, for thousands of years. And so people look at that time and think, okay, well, um, there were maybe battles in the area of the Bridgewater Triangle. There was uh, a genocide that happened. Um, this may have a bearing on the UFO stuff, but I think it's important to remember that there were there were ten thousand years, and in those years there were population collapses. We know this from the archaeological record, where it went from being very densely settled to nobody living there anymore at certain times. Um, and there must have been wars, and there must have been famines. And there must have been all of the horrible things and, and all the good things that human beings do in their in their cultures. Um, and so we just don't know. You know, it's uh, yeah. it's certainly something something interesting to look at. But 
Right. You know, I don't I don't know that we can make a link between that and the paranormal stuff, really. Yes. And another thing that kind of fascinates me on all that, too, is if you think about the Ice Age, how could you know, maybe there was maybe there was a settle, you know, settlements long before the Ice Age, 20,000 years ago that were wiped out during the Ice Age. and, And, you know, and maybe that's why we only have records in the New England area of, uh, you know, 14,000 years, I believe it is something like that, um, of, of beings here. And they say, you know, possibly came over from, uh, I forget the, exactly the landmass, however they got, got here. Um, perhaps, uh, we just don't know a lot about our real, our history when it goes back much further than 10,000 years. We really don't know much. You can find books that were written within human memory, you know, a few generations ago, saying that uh, Native Americans arrived in New England 3,000 years ago. And that number has been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And now it's at 14,000 years. But I believe that even that is far too soon. I think that I think that someday archaeology will yield information that people have been here for tens of thousands of years. I, I do. Right I do amateur archaeology as a hobby. I do uh, surface collecting of uh, Native American artifacts. Uh, it's uh, on private property with permission. I study these stone tools and I learn from them about the life ways of the people that lived here in the past. Um, and I correspond with other people who do the same thing in, in other spots. And the spots where I find stone tools, the ages of those tool, stone tools range from maybe a thousand years old to seven or 8,000 years old. But I know people who have other spots that are still older. And I know other people who find what certainly appear to be stone tools with wear on them uh, in deposits that were left behind when the glacier receded, suggesting that these things predate the glacier, predate the Ice Age. Um, I would think so. I would think that's very possible. Yeah. When I was a little kid in Maine, a friend of my and, and I were running through a field and he tripped. And I don't know why he even thought to do this, but he went back to see what he tripped on. And it ended up being a, a, a stone axe, axe head. And he sent it off to the University of uh, New Hampshire to have him. You know, they said it was indeed, you know, an early stone head, uh, uh, stone axe head. Here's a question I was thinking about in my mind, but I almost didn't dare to ask it. Uh, Diane asked this question. Were you concerned about negative repercussions from speaking about this topic tonight? I was thinking about that. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And um, on some level, you know, I'm concerned about negative repercussions for you and for everybody listening to this, because um, there have been there have been absolutely times when I have um, confided in people years ago about things that happened to me and then the next day a phone call from them and they'd say hey chris you're never going to believe what happened to me last night but i felt like there was something in my room or something like that and i'm not talking about people that i knew who were prone to flights of fancy i'm talking about like people that i knew who viewed themselves as uh macho you know masculine figures who expressed fear after something happened to them after I talked to them about this. And it is a fact that I didn't talk about this with anybody for a span of close to 10 years of my life. You know, there was, there was a time when I just swore off talking about this stuff. 
altogether. Um, but eventually I finally sort of came up with that, okay, well, if I just look at this stuff as sort of a folklore stuff, if I just collect these stories, I can still participate in all of this. I can still um, speculate about this with people and, you know, enjoy the aspects of this that I enjoy, the what-if aspects and, you know, but I, I am leery about discussing the reality of my you know, findings. And certainly I, I could, I could come on a program like this and you and I could just have a talk about, um, oh, you know, aliens, ancient aliens, are they real? You know, or like stuff I've done on TV before. Um, I like all that stuff. It's fun, you know, but I, I had kind of resolved when, when you asked me to come on the podcast that if I was going to come on, I was going to be honest and tell people what I really, what my conclusions are. And, and people are free to to totally dismiss everything that I'm saying. And it doesn't hurt my feelings at all because I can't prove any of it. And I, and I know how crazy it sounds, but that is, you know, for people out there who I think are really trying to get some insight into this, this is the insight that I can maybe give provide, or, or at least give people something to think about or a, an alley to look at. But, but like I say, be careful, you know, it is dangerous. It is negative. It is harmful. I don't think that there is going to be an answer. And uh, the closer you get to whatever it is, the more, the more danger you're in. Yeah. Well, that's, we're, we're going to stay in touch. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I yeah, know. Let me know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, de I definitely will. Uh, the lines are open and Bill is standing by uh, to screen your call. And remember when you call in, you have to mute your, uh, your media, whatever you're listening to the show on. That number is up on the screen. It's 855-472-5483. I see Dave's in the chat. Hi, Dave. Thanks for doing that. Um, so yeah, Bill is standing by. Uh, so the line is open and I'm sure we should get some calls after all these messages came in. And uh, no, this whole, this whole thing is fascinating. This whole thing about um, your thoughts on it and I love archaeology myself too. I mean, this is a, uh, I might want to hang out with you and maybe we'll both get run over or something <laughs> by Look, men in uh, black. Where you live, right? where you live, there's a lot of stuff to study and to find. And uh, we could go out and look at that stuff, certainly. Now, isn't there a tower? Did I hear about a tower somewhere? Stone Tower. In Newport, maybe? That's right. That's in Newport. Uh, I so think we have... that probably was built in the 17th century. But oh, okay. that's a, it's it, that's another one of these. There are so many of these. And, uh, you know, this is kind of tangential to, to the UFO stuff. Right. But there are so many enigmas with stonework in um, in Massachusetts. And when I when I took a big step back away from UFO investigation because it had become too frightening, I um, I really dove headfirst into the archaeological mystery stuff. It, it, it had kind of the mysterious aspect that UFOs had. It had maybe the promise of finding out something that no one else had been able to find out. Um, but a, a big difference was, was that a, uh, a stone chamber was still going to be there the next day. And, uh, you know, the UFO stuff was, uh, didn't have that kind of repeatability, right? Right. Fleeting. That's the main problem. It has been all along. We have John, uh, from New Mexico, it's on the line. John, you are live on the air. Hi, how are you? Hi, welcome to the show. Hey, it's an honor to speak with you and uh, 
talk with you guys and I'm pretty excited. I've been watching your show and listening to it a lot and I'm all well, about thank it. You. Thank you. I have a question for our guest tonight. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's um, hopefully it has something to do with what you were just talking about. What do you think about underground bases? Well, that that's a good question, and I I wouldn't rule out the possibility of something like an underground base. Um, there's a book called Silent Invasion by Ellen Crystal. It's one of the best books that I ever read about UFOs. And in this book, she's discussing a wave of UFO sightings in Pine Bush, New York. And there is this, this kind of undercurrent of, okay, there seems to be uh, a bunch of UFOs seen entering and exiting the ground. And there are areas that seem to mysteriously be off limits and that are, that are connected to this UFO stuff. Um, do I think that there is literally a hollow space underneath the surface of the earth somewhere in North America where there's UFOs and hangars, I'm inclined to say, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I don't know if it's the case, um, but I do think that for, there is a, there is like a connection between UFO sightings and, and the underground and openings in the ground. And, and the openings in the ground do um, have a connection with uh, prehistoric Native American ethnography too, where they, seem to have venerated these places or regarded them as special places. Um, you know, there is, there is kind of a interplay here between like reality and, and folklore and myth and, and po the possibility that some folklores and myths are based on things that take place in objective reality. And that, that has a connection to UFO sightings. Um, there are parallels between European myths of little people and fairies and, and what would happen to people if they got captured by the fairies. Um, there are parallels between that and, and people who say that they've been abducted by aliens and what happened to them when they were on board the UFOs. And these parallels are, are remarkable and they're compelling. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, you get into these aspects of UFO study and I think I just probably like lose a lot of people, right, with this crazy stuff. But it's just, uh, you know, I hate to repeat myself, but that's that's what I found. No, it's it's interesting, and and I, it's it's not something to be discounted, you know. Like like the farther I guess down the rabbit hole you go, the more out there things can seem, but the more interconnected they can be as well. And. Um, no, I think that's cool that you said about the ancient caves and possibly modern caves and and all that stuff because I've heard about things like that too. I mean, I'm I'm in the area of northern New Mexico, kind of by Los Alamos, and I grew up out here. And there's a lot of, I guess you could say, folklore. It's a part of the it's a part of the culture out here, um, UFOs and everything. And I've always been fascinated by why that is. And how it's kind of interconnected with, you know, the Manhattan Project and and everything else. And it's all, I find, really interesting. But like you've also said, sometimes when you get too close, it's not so fun anymore. <laughs> and it can get pretty real. Sure. And, uh, so it's, it's good to be careful, too, because it isn't a joke in a lot of aspects. If you get close to certain situations, like people won't talk. and they have ample reason 
and they know, but they won't say, and they know other people. And that's when it starts to get a little, you got to be careful, I guess, but I've always found it to be really, really fascinating and amazing and interesting. I think you're making some great points there. I like the, um, I like, you know, kind of what you're saying about the, this sort of rabbit hole that you can go down where you're getting into more and more esoteric stuff. And um, people will, I think some people will maybe want to push back against that and, and discount these really kind of far out ideas. But I, I would kind of put it to people this way where it's like, okay, it's, it's easy to envision aliens from space coming here and doing experiments. Um, there's really no more evidence for that than there is for the parallels between UFOs and fairies, right? Like, like if we're just going to look specifically at the evidence, you know, what is the evidence? And, and there's just as much evidence for this maybe more complex, maybe more confusing or outlandish sounding stuff as there is for the extraterrestrial hypothesis or other narratives that are, that are a lot easier to grasp. I also like that you mentioned that there are people who know things and won't say things because that is so true. You know, there is more that is known than is discussed. And I did want to throw out there, we've been talking about this Native American stuff. I, um, I am not a Native American. And I understand that Native American people have a perspective on this that I do not share um, because it is theirs. And I respect their perspective on it totally. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't speak for them. And I think that there are, are people with that perspective who maybe have more insight on this than I do. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I've been hearing a lot or more recently, too, on your show, Martin, about that kind of connection with the metaphysical between different mediums or aspects of it and how it's all kind of seems connected. And I believe in that. And I think what's interesting is that before modern times, before the um, industrial revolution and all that, people were more prone to believe in the mystical. And now because we have imperial thought and, you know, like matter-based science and evidence and all that stuff based on, you know, can't put it in a test tube, it isn't real. A lot of people started to disbelieve in that. But what I've learned and what I think also exists in um, secret projects is that there is an awareness of that, of the metaphysical and of the unexplainable. And I think UFOs can maybe go in between and go into different planes and all kinds of stuff like that. But it's all, it's not separate. We're not, it's, it's not like we're just living in an imperial, imperial or whatever version of reality based on modern science. I think that there's a whole other area of science that's been classified or that isn't encouraged to the general public that explains these things more and the interconnectedness of it. And people that do the research will find that there is a relation between these things. And maybe that's why these myths have always existed. And older cultures accepted, accepted it more. Well, the line between science and, uh, and magic is not, a, is not a hard and fast line. You know, someone 100 years ago, if they could see our technology today, they would regard it as magic. And the technology of 100 years ago, of 100 years from now in the future, is something that that we would regard as magic. Um, you know, most people, pe people are so 
they get so caught up when we talk about these mysteries and say, well, I, I won't believe it until I can, you know, take it apart myself and see it. And it's like, what percentage of people know how your phone works or like the electrical outlet in your house, you plug it in and like, you know, there's power there. Do people really know how that, what percentage of people really understand how that electricity is generated and gets to your house and what electricity is, right? You know, there's, there's aspects of our own technology that we use every day that very, very few people actually understand. That's right. John, thank you so much for the uh, call. Um, I actually lived out in Los Alamos for about six months years ago, and I used to like to go out to Bandelier and, and, and uh, also I was very fascinated with the cliff, the cliff dwellings. And uh, there's some actually some I think there's some uh, paintings up in some of those cliff cliff dwellings. Is that right, John? John is gone. Well, thank you for the call, John. The line is still open now. And that phone number is right up on the screen, 855-472-5483. He was talking about um, underground, but, you know, we were the ocean is, uh, you know, 70, um, water is 70% of this planet. It seems like if these things can go in between mediums and they actually need to hide, um, maybe they don't need to hide, but maybe that is uh, that is a, a place for them. But um, before I get going in any other tangent here, we have Spencer. Uh, Spencer is calling from North Carolina. Spencer, you're live on the air. Welcome to the show. Spencer? Yes. Yes, you are live on the show. Hey, how are you? Um, I just had a question about uh, with all the UFO uh, topics and videos coming out, we haven't heard much anything or anything else about it. I was curious to see what he thinks, your guest thinks, will come from the UFO uh, videos or if there's anything else coming in the media. And why has it not been talked about more? Hmm. Well, to be honest, I, I don't think there's got to be more that comes out. And uh, look, I'm not, I have seen the reports that have come out and the, the videos and um, the eyewitness testimony. I think all of us interested in the subject have seen this stuff. And I am a little bit skeptical about it. I can't help but notice that all of these high profile witnesses are uh, government and military people. And I understand that there are a lot of military people who are trained observers who are totally credible. And I talked to a lot of uh, military witnesses during my time as a uh, UFO investigator. But when all of the information is coming from the government and military, it kind of gives me pause. My, um, like my social media feed, I've got a lot of friends on, on Facebook. I follow a lot of people on Instagram and that stuff isn't really full of great new UFO um, photos and video at all. You know, most of my friends are posting about, uh, you know, what they had for dinner or, you know, concerns about COVID. They're not sharing their UFO videos. Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of, I don't really think we're living in a situation where everybody is seeing this stuff all the time. Um, I just, I think that the government uses disinformation to, um, to conceal. I think they, they deliberately propagate this information about UFOs as part of a, uh, a way to conceal what they are doing. And I think if UFO sightings did wane, if the UFO hype and interest was flagging. I wouldn't put it past them to make something up to keep it going. 
So, you know, I just, I, I just really don't know. And of course, um, the future could prove me wrong. There could be some kind of crazy disclosure tomorrow that takes everybody by surprise. I certainly didn't predict um, the wave of kind of progressive releases that we've seen in recent months and years. Um, but, you know, I, I, I feel maybe they feel like they've, uh, they've stoked the flames enough and maybe they'll sit back for a while and, and let us all uh, dissect and, and debate these sightings and, and videos and stuff until uh, it's time for, to throw us another bone. Well, um, you know, that may very well be the case. And uh, thank you very much for the call, Spencer. Uh, we have another uh, call waiting, uh, Dan uh, from Costa Rica. I'm going to pull them up in just a second. Um, but uh, supposedly there is a 23-minute video coming out. And um, I'm going to grill uh, Lou Elizondo when I have him on the show. He knows about that. And supposedly there's several craft and all that stuff, which is Fascinating. I hope we do get to see that. Uh, for right now, though, we have uh, Dan on the line from Costa Rica. Dan, you are live on the air. Hey, Chris. It's crappy Dan from Long Beach Clip 45 crew. Awesome. Great to hear from you, man. How are you? Awesome. Good, man. I'm watching. I'm watching you live here. Thanks. Super cool. I can see your face. <laughs> so Thanks, my question is for you. Um, what's your take? on atlantis and the Lumer lemurians I, well, I you know, that's a good question uh the uh this kind of goes into sort of what i was talking about earlier with regard to myth and folklore and myth and folklore having a basis in in fact in historical fact um there is no doubt that there is archaeological evidence under the surface of the ocean that pertains to uh, cities and civilizations that we don't know anything about. And in the ancient world, Atlantis was chronicled no differently from the other great empires that we now know where they were and, and know, you know, we, we can dig up their cities and we can go to a museum and see their art. And Atlantis is this, you know, there, how, I don't know how many times some, some TV documentary has come out and it's like Atlantis revealed, you know, we found this underground city or underwater city that was destroyed by a tsunami or, you know, we believe that we found in this desert somewhere the, these faint vestiges of some great city that was abandoned because of some cataclysm. Um, and, and, and who knows, though, there is no... There is no definitive answer, and I'm, I'm not sure that there ever will be, because with regard to human history, it's just there's just so much of it that we just won't know anything about. And, um, you know, the Lemurians, uh, I kind of put them in a category of these kind of folkloric beings, like I mentioned earlier, the, the Shaver mystery and the Deros, which is something that I, I really kind of like to talk about, where there's a lot of stories and a lot of legends and a lot of folklore and then there's this tantalizing sort of possibility that some of this stuff uh, represents real encounters, that some of this stuff is real, where it, you might find parallels between stories of people who never could have heard each other's stories, but who yet um, came up with something, said something happened to them, some detail that seems oddly specific that is, is shared among these stories. And I think, they're, uh, I think it's really interesting. Um, 
but it, it, it's 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 a rabbit hole, you know. You really can uh, can get kind of sucked into this stuff, and and there's never going to be a real answer. Right, and and it's the discoveries in Antarctica. I mean, I think uh, you know, I think there's a lot to find out about Antarctica. There's um, maps that seem to show Antarctica under the ice, you know, things that no human could have known. I think to put it in, in the most simple terms possible, I am convinced, regardless of aliens, regardless of anything else, I am convinced that there is a tremendous amount of human history that we would be shocked if we knew. And I think that there are a lot of things that we think of as modern that were discovered in prehistoric times and that maybe were widely known about in prehistoric times. And we, we just don't realize because so much has been lost. So much wasn't written down or is under the ocean or underground somewhere. Great stuff. 1000%. Chris, you're awesome. Thank you for what you do. Good talking Thanks. to you. Good to All talk right. to you, man. Thank you for calling. Yeah. Thanks for calling in. So that's going to be it for uh, calls for us tonight. Yeah. All that stuff is fascinating because there's, there's so many things that could have happened. You know, I mentioned earlier the ice ages, there's been many, but there's also the moving of tectonic plates and um, you know, and major earthquakes every time there's, you know, there's a substantial movement on that. And, you know, the landmass is joining together and then uh, how under the ocean, I don't ever, I've never really been able to figure that out, how the tectonic plates moved. If we were all, if the landmass was joined together and separated, then where does the ocean floor come from? You know, that type of thing. Is it all just churned up like a, you know, like a rototiller, uh, you know, churning the, the garden, you know what I mean? Well, we're, you know, we're talking about billions of years, you know, geologic time. We can't even grasp it. You know, right. it's, uh, it's beyond our ability to understand. There was a story that you might have seen in archaeology in the last month or two about fossilized human footprints that were found in Mexico that were dated much, much earlier than we had previously yes. believed. And, and, right. and this stuff is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, the more we investigate, the further back this number gets. Um, and I think someday even our most basic ideas about where human beings came from will be challenged. Um, I, I was just talking about that with a friend the other day, you know, like when you hear scientists say that, you know, the homo species, homo sapiens species, us, you know, are like 100,000 years old or 200,000 years old, something like that. To me, that that makes me wonder a lot of things like evolution, how things could develop so quickly to become our species. And, you know, uh, it's all baffling. And I think you're right. I think we will know a lot more someday and i think you know for there's always going to be hesitancy to rewrite history books you know from the human development there's always going to be uh you know people fighting anything that's discovered is what i'm saying unfortunately there'll be part yeah. of science that will that's not how science is supposed to work but that's how it, it actually can the people adopt ideas in sets and you know the science is very sticky and it takes so much to overturn these orthodoxies. I mean, it, when you really start to look at some of the fossil record for human ancestors and for primates in North America, for example, where you've got um, millions of years of time represented by a single fossil fragment, you know, a tooth or part of a cranium, it's like, I mm. think there's a tremendous amount of hubris in thinking that we know 
all about it, you know, that, that these things are all answered and we figured it all out. I don't think we're there at all. And we do, um, by the way, we do have amnesia very, you know, we really don't, it, things don't seem to carry forward uh, very far. You know, you look at your own ancestry, you know, how much do you know about your great grandfather? You know, that type of thing. We, we really don't carry along, you know, thank goodness there's documentation now, but prior to books and things like that, you know, there were a lot of stories that were never carried forward. And that's and, part of why I got into the historical UFO cases, because I think that there's so much material there and it's so important and uh, so little of it is kind of accessible. You know, there's there's the kind of the aspect of the UFO investigator that's fun where you're you're knocking on doors and saying, excuse me, miss, did you see, you know, a, an alien in your yard or whatever? But there's this other aspect of it that's maybe less glamorous where you're trawling through microfilm rolls, where you're going through dusty newspapers and finding um, these clues. You know, I, it's, it's not as, uh, they're never going to make an X-Files episode about a guy who does research at the library, but there's so much to find. Right. Chris, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed our conversation tonight. And I hope, uh, I hope we stay in touch. I would love it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was great. All right. We have to stay in touch. We have to see how things go after this. Yeah, let me know if something weird happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. You take care. Thanks. You too. All right. All right, everyone. So that's it. And next week, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, I'll be out in Arizona with a friend and we're going to be uh, broadcasting our show live from there with uh, several MUFON people. Thanks so much, everyone. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. Mm-hmm.